God's new things. And one of them is a holy city, verse 2, which is named New Jerusalem. Verse 9 now is going to return to that city. It says that one of the angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Verse 10 says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Notice that the angel said, I will show you the bride. Then he showed him a city. The city is referred to as the bride, the lamb's wife. Most personal, intimate, and loving relationship on earth is that between a man and his wife. God has so created us that we are born with an innate desire for this relationship. It almost exceeds our desire for life itself. King Solomon, a man who knew a thing or two about love and marriage, wrote in the Song of Solomon that this bond between a man and his wife is the strong love that many waters cannot quench. Genesis 1 says that it is for this love that a man forsakes his father and his mother so that he might cleave or literally cling to his bride. Now what Bible believers have come to understand is that this relationship was deliberately designed by God to point to something infinitely beyond itself. In fact, one of the whole purposes for this relationship between a man and a woman is that it might stand as a sign of this greater and higher relationship. You see, the scripture reveals that from all eternity past, God has purposed to have a bride for himself. And when you read the Old Testament, it becomes apparent that God chose out an individual nation for that relationship to himself. It is, of course, the nation of Israel. For reasons known only to himself, God put his hand on a man named Abraham and declared that from this man he would produce such a nation. Even centuries after that choosing and the making of that covenant, even after those people had so apostatized and turned their affections away from him, the Lord said to them in Isaiah 54, verse 5, For your maker, the one who created you, is your husband, the Lord of hosts, is his name. In other words, he made you to be a wife for him. In Ezekiel 16, God actually gives his account of choosing Israel for this glorious role, and he pictures her as someone who had nothing desirable about her when he found her. In fact, he says uh, to them, your roots are among the Canaanites. Your parents were Canaanite pagans. 
And then in verse 8, in that condition, he says, when I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you. And you became mine, says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood. I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen, covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. That a wonderful picture. You know, even centuries before that revelation, when these people were still in the desert, having been brought miraculously out of Egypt, God explained to them in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 8, that He didn't choose them because of anything that was desirable in them. He said, The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, and he's referring to the fact, of course, that uh, he had appeared to Abraham and he entered into this solemn covenant with that man. And this was an unconditional covenant. In other words, there were no conditions uh, that Abraham had to meet. There were no commands that were given for him to obey. Uh, this was a unilateral covenant. God simply came to him and he said, Abraham, uh, I'm going to do this and this and this and this. And all that Abraham had to do was believe. I mean, God said he would do it all. So unbelievable that he repeated it to Abraham's son, Isaac, and to his grandson, Jacob. And then these promises were given to the sons of Jacob, to Israel and his offspring. And God said, I didn't do that because there was anything uh, particularly desirable about you. I just set my love on you. Like a man chooses a woman for himself to love. That's what I did, O Israel. Now that's the backdrop to a tragedy that is recounted in one of the Old Testament prophets, Prophet Hosea. In the second verse of that book, God told this man to go and marry a woman who had adulterous tendencies, whom God actually said would sell herself as a prostitute. And yet he told Hosea, you're going to do this because this will be a sign. It's going to be a living illustration as to what the children of Israel have done in their relationship with me. They've made themselves adulterous. He says they've committed great 
harlotry. They've sold themselves in a prostitution. They've been unfaithful. And you know how the story plays out, right? God disciplines his people for their unfaithfulness by sending them into captivity for 70 years. Now, when you open the pages of the New Testament, you really have a turning point in the story when God the Father sends his Son in flesh to purchase for himself a bride. And that is what Revelation 19 refers to. Then chapter 21 uses bridal terminology in relation to this city, and that's what I want to look at uh, this morning. So I want to speak to you from uh, really just verse 9 alone on the bridal city. And the reason I'm referring it to referring to it as a bridal city, as I mentioned, is because when the angel shows John the bride in verse 10, he carries him away and he shows him that holy city, New Jerusalem. In verse 9, it is called the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And instead of giving you a formal outline today, I just simply want to try and pull together uh, the majority of New Testament texts that speak of this glorious relationship. I've painted a picture for you of what the, the Old Testament says. Let's begin now where the New Testament does when the Lord Jesus began his public ministry. He had a forerunner named John the Baptist. And John is the first one to give a hint of the role of Jesus of Nazareth as a groom. He explained his relationship to Jesus of Nazareth in John 3.29 when he referred to him as the friend of the bridegroom. The implication, of course, is that Jesus of Nazareth is the groom. Our Lord embraced this role for himself. You remember when he answered a question about why his followers were not practicing fasting. He said that it wasn't appropriate for the friends of a groom to fast while he was present. But that after the bridegroom went away, then they would fast. Mark 2, 18 to 20. So here is the Son of God sent by the Father and sent in this role, among other things, of a bridegroom. Now, we would assume, after reading the Old Testament, that the bride would be national Israel. Uh, these were the people to whom John the Baptist was preaching. These are the ones to whom Jesus himself said he was sent. But of course, you know the end of the story uh, of that in the Gospels. That nation ultimately rejected him. In fact, they hung him on a tree. And that raises the question then that is posed by the Apostle Paul in Romans 9. Turn to Romans 9, 6, and let's look at God's intention for this nation in chapters 9 and 11 of this book. And the question I am referring to can simply be put in these terms. If Israel did reject her groom, which she did, was the divine intention for the Son of God to have a bride, was that now ruined? Was it over for them? You know, some theologians would say yes. But Romans 9, 6 puts it in this way 
when it says it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, meaning that it's not as if the word of God has failed in this regard. And all those promises to Abraham fell flat because Israel didn't come to salvation. And someone says, well, how can you say that? given what Israel did to the point of murdering the Son of God. Well, part of the answer to that is what Paul goes into when he says that at the end of verse 6, you know, they're not all Israel who descended from Israel. And clearly he's using the word Israel in two senses here. One is in a spiritual sense and one is natural. So they're not all spiritual Israel who are physical Israel or descendants of Jacob. I mean, you have to understand that point in order to understand that the word of God or the covenant of God is not impotent. His word has not failed. The divine intention has not been ruined. God's promises are not empty because his people are not all spiritual Israel who are physical Israel. In other words, his people are not limited to the physical nation of Israel. You say, well, how does that work? Well, part of the explanation for that is given later in this chapter. I want to begin in verse 22 now, where this question is raised. Right? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, what if, instead of doing that, he endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Say, well, who are the vessels of mercy? Next verse. Even us, whom he called, not of the Jews only, I mean, they're not forgotten, but also of the Gentiles. In other words, what if God had more in mind than simply the nation of Israel? What if his intention was in two parts and not just one? I mean, he always planned to call to himself national Israel to be his bride, but what if part two in his plan included people who weren't physical descendants of Abraham? Do you ever take that into consideration? Well, Paul has scripture to prove his point. Verse 25. And of all books in the Old Testament, guess which book he quotes from? Book of Hosea. In that book, portraying Israel's unfaithfulness, God says, I will call them my people who were not my people, who were not Israel, and her beloved who was not beloved. So, number two, God's intention is beyond national Israel. And who could have imagined that 2,000 years ago? Well, what about the nation of Israel then? What's going to happen to them? Let's turn to chapter 11, verse 7, where this question is now posed. Verse 7 says, what then? Well, he says, Israel, it's national Israel, has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect, those who are chosen now, they have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Now, he's going to discuss that in the rest of the chapter. Verse 25 is kind of a summary statement when he says this, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, right? lest you should be wise in your own opinion. He said, I'm going to explain it now. 
that blindness in part has happened to Israel. It's a partial blindness until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. A full harvest of souls from all the Gentile nations like New Zealand, like Australia, until that's complete. When that's complete, and it's not complete yet, praise the Lord. When that's complete, all national Israel will now be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It works like this, verse 28. Concerning the gospel, from that viewpoint, all right, they are enemies right now for your sake, for the sake of Gentiles coming to Christ. But concerning the election, from that viewpoint, okay, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, because of those promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here's the principle, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, God made certain promises. He pledged certain gifts. He issued a calling. He voiced his choice. And that, my friends, is irrevocable. To break his promises is to break his very character. And that will never happen. So in the end, he's saying it is the election of God that guarantees the future salvation of Israel. He chose them, but you better believe they're going to come. Now, we've just come through the part of Revelation where we have a very graphic account, or we had a very graphic account, of the pressure that God is going to put on this nation. It will eventuate in a full two-thirds of these people dying. But a third will be protected. They will be preserved right to the end of the tribulation. And then at his coming, they will look on him whom they hung on a tree, and they're going to wail, they're going to mourn because of him and what they did to him, and that nation, Zechariah says, will be saved in a day. Because God has decided it's going to be so. Like a man decides on a bride. Now let's turn our attention to what was going on when the Son of God hung on that tree. We are told in the Gospels, as well as in over 20 references in Revelation, uh, that this is when he took on the role of a lamb. He hung on the cross, he took on the role, a sacrificial role of a lamb. It was a self-sacrifice of the Son of God who would remove the sin of the whole world and enable now the creation of his bride, the church. Now, the most extensive passage in the New Testament regarding marriage is Ephesians 5, which tells us about the wonder of the relationship between a man and his wife, and the apostle parallels it with the relationship of the Lord Jesus to his universal church, his bride, whom he purchased with his blood on the cross. In other words, we have this beautiful revelation of such love from a groom for a bride that was demonstrated that day in those horrible hours of agony on the cross. There's never been a groom who chose a bride 
so unworthy of himself, so unlike himself by nature, and so absolutely certain to deeply disappoint and wound him in the future. There has never been a groom who has stooped so low and paid such a terrible price and suffered to such lengths in order to obtain a wife for himself. The Lord Jesus could do it because he had the end in view. And he knew that the end was going to be a sure thing. It was not in doubt. Ephesians 5 says that as husbands should love their wives, so Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her in this sacrificial way, in the way that we talked about, in order that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That's the goal that he had in mind. And then it says that he might present her to himself. And listen to the wording here. A glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish before him. That end is certain. He's going to make us perfect. I mean, there won't be a spot. There won't be a wart. There's not going to be a pimple. There's not going to be no gray hairs. We're going to be glorious before him. And it will all be his work. It was to this end he came. The father intended from all eternity that his son should have a bride. That his bride should be made up of individuals chosen by the father from every nation on earth. Then he determined that those people all together would be made like the one to whom they will be wedded for all eternity. Now, that brings us to the point where we actually enter into this picture as individuals in this plan. What happens when a man or a woman hears the gospel and decides, okay, I will take him. Like a woman is asked, will you have this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? Will you pledge to love him, to honor, to obey, and submit to him? Will you take him? Okay. If she is publicly prepared to say, I do. Or if someone decides to accept Jesus as their savior. Or their bridegroom. What happens? At that point, the Bible speaks of them as being betrothed. Another word would be espoused. Or we, you know, in Western culture, we use the word engagement. Although these are not... Uh, strictly identical in meaning. Oh, by the way, my son got engaged yesterday. I meant to tell you. Shawnee and Kayla are engaged. So. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm taking a rabbit trail here. But <laughs> congratulations to them. You can ask them the story later. Thank you for the music. Now, this uh, betrothal is explained in Romans 7 and later on by the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, and it's interesting, but we are told that before we were confronted with the good news of what Christ intends to do for us, which we just looked at in Ephesians, all right, we had a previous relationship that had to be severed. And that is our relationship to the holy and good 
and righteous law of God. Paul likens this to a previous marital relationship, and he argues in this way, he says that when a man and a woman are joined in marriage, he says there's only one thing that can free them, so that the remaining partner can remarry, and that one event is what? Death. Right. After that, even though she may have had a previous husband, she's free to remarry. So Paul says, now, you have been severed or loosed from your relationship to the law. He puts it in these terms. He says, you died to the law in that relationship. I mean, you can't say that the law died, but you died in your relationship to the law. It's over. It's terminated. You no longer have to attempt salvation by keeping the law, by works. That's impossible. You're free now to be married to another, that is, to Christ. Now, when that takes place, the apostle says in 2 Corinthians 11.2 that now you are betrothed to one husband like a chaste virgin. I told you before uh, that betrothal and, and engagement are similar, but they're not identical in meaning. And that's because the background to betrothal in Scripture goes back to Jewish custom. We have a wonderful illustration of that in the lives of Mary and Joseph, right? Uh, They were betrothed, and even though they were not physically one, they were still regarded as man and wife. So much so that during a Jewish betrothal, if either partner was unfaithful, it was called adultery. Because that covenant they had agreed to with one another was to be a sure thing. So that they could say to one another, my beloved is mine. And I am his. Now, this is where we stand today. We are betrothed to our beloved. We are waiting for what the scripture speaks of in several passages, including Revelation 19, which is the wedding. We are waiting for the wedding and the wedding supper. The Lord referred to this in several parables, and I just want to weave a few of those together now. For example... In Matthew 22, he said, now let me tell you about the role of my father right now with reference to this coming event. He said, it's like a man inviting people to a wedding celebration of his son. That's what my father is doing right now. When you read that parable, you discover that this call is going out indiscriminately. The invitation is being sent to people who live in the hedges those who are out on the highways and the byways. The call is issued to the down and outers, those people in the lowest state of life. I mean, this father is sending people out to the homeless shelters and the city missions and the slums, and he's saying to everybody, there's going to be a big celebration. Come on! When people agree that they will come and be his, The Lord likens them in Matthew 25 to virgins, as Paul did in 2 Corinthians 11. It's virgins, plural, because we're all individuals. And in that passage, the Lord said it is imperative that people who really believe that he will come as a bridegroom, they should be prepared. Like virgins who are waiting at night for the coming of the day, for the gladness and the joy of seeing their espoused groom. 
They only had little oil lamps. Some of them weren't prepared. They didn't have any more oil ready for their lamp. Others were wise. They took extra oil. And the application from the Lord was, hey, you got to be alert. you got to wait like that with anticipation and preparation for his coming. Now, Revelation 19 adds to that picture. If you turn there for a moment. We saw this in a previous message. Uh, the following all of the events of the terrible tribulation, we finally come to the moment of the wedding. We finally get to the marriage. And it says in verse 7 that we are all invited by a heavenly chorus to rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. Why? Well, because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has been preparing herself, right? His wife, it says, has made herself ready. Well, we saw the need for that in Matthew 25, but here's what adds to the picture. His bride has made herself ready, but here's how we do it. Next verse kind of fills out the concept a bit when it says, And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen. That's what she does to prepare. She prepares herself for that day by preparing what she's going to wear. And it's clean and bright. Why is that? Well, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Her dress is made up of our righteous acts. Now again, our sanctification is in Christ. I want to assure you that we are guaranteed to be like him one day. The scripture also teaches us that God himself works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. In other words, God literally energizes in us a willingness to do what pleases him and the power to do it. In order, it says, that we might work out our salvation. Literally, we need to work it down to its God-designed conclusion, which is the idea there in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. I could put it this way, that you don't have to work for your salvation. But it is no salvation that doesn't produce works. And as we do that, it is a preparation. We are going to meet him face to face as the bridegroom in our future wedding day. We don't want to be ashamed when he comes. We want to be alert and rejoicing. Fully prepared as a bride is prepared to see her groom at the altar. They can take that really and make it just as practical as your everyday acts of goodness. When you do any righteous deed from a heart that is responding to Jesus Christ and his call to love one another, to serve one another, to be salt and light in the earth, that, my friends, is a preparation. It's another fine linen thread in the clean and bright wedding garment for that day. Let me tell you, people who really know the Lord, they're not reluctant to do that. They're not put out. It is not an intrusion in their daily schedule to come here on a Saturday morning and hand out food to the community and share the gospel and love these people because they love the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way we prepare for his coming.
Now, coming back to chapter 21, our gracious groom has evidently prepared a place for us, just as a groom today prepares a place for he and his bride to live after the wedding. Of course, we already knew that from John 14, that he prepares a place for us, but here we learn that he's actually prepared a city for us. I mentioned this last time, but just like people can come into this building and they can observe from the decorations that uh, it is being prepared for a special event of a wedding, so that city is one that descends from God out of heaven and it will visibly display that it has been prepared to be a dwelling place for a bride. So much so that the city is identified by the role of the ones who will live in it. It is referred to as the bride, the wife of the lamb, because that's who it's being prepared for. Um, now, you talk about a oneness between the Lord and his people. For they are going to dwell forever together. You talk about a honeymoon suite, the honeymoon city. This is it. And that brings me to add kind of this tender moment into the image. Back in those parables about the wedding supper, uh, there is the picture that the Lord Jesus gives of eating and drinking. And in Matthew 8, the Lord said, you know, in that day, there'll be many who will come from the four corners of the earth, the Gentile world. He said, they're going to sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom. But you know, the amazing and tender fact I want to point out is that the Lord himself will serve us. You get that? Uh, when you stop and meditate upon that, that is absolutely beyond our conception. Think of it this way. What kind of groom serves the food at his own wedding feast? Well, who are we that the Lord of glory will come and serve us? Let me tell you who we are. We are his chosen bride. He loves us, so he will serve us. Can you get that image? Going to be feasting and eating who knows what amazing dishes, you know, like those uh, chef-hatted restaurants where it doesn't matter what you order, even if you don't normally like it, it's going to be delicious, right? Uh, drinking wine that I would think it has at least the same quality as the wine Jesus made at the wedding in Cana. He promised his disciples at the Last Supper that he's going to drink wine with us new in the kingdom. He won't drink it again until then. It's going to be merriment. There's going to be laughter, exhilaration. It's going to be a world of color and an ocean of sound that's just unimaginable. There's simply no words to describe what will be, what will be ours when we are united with our groom in that way. Now, we do have a small taste of that moment, I think, because you remember at the Last Supper, um, our Lord instituted a practice that every obedient church conducts on a regular basis. We call it communion or the Lord's table. And when the apostle instructed the Corinthians on this table, he said that every time we partake, we proclaim the death of the Lamb until he comes for his bride. 
So we partake with anticipation of the moment when we will enter that wedding and that wedding feast. The bliss will never end. The Lord's table keeps that promise before us. And this is one reason why we partake. Now, many of you here have been brides. You want to be brides. The other half of us who are not married or who are married, we have not been brides. But I think there is something that those of you who have been brides can identify with, while those who are husbands really we cannot. And a young man, out of all available prospects, uh, sets his eye upon a woman. His instinct is to possess her for himself. That is a God-given instinct. It mirrors the Savior's actions. But a woman, you know, has the instinct of longing to be possessed by that man. In all of our culture's efforts to erase the genders and devalue the marriage relationship and call out sexism, whether it is or not, and tear down the biblical roles of men and women, the simple fact is that a woman wants to be swallowed up in the love of her future husband and to be truly possessed by him. The more you walk with the Lord and know him, the more you come to experience that in your own heart with reference to him as your espoused groom. Now, don't you want that? To be his, to be his completely, to be his alone without a single rival affection anywhere in your being, to be truly and wholly his and lost in his wonder and love and praise. You live for the day when it will be like that, unhindered by any sin in your own uh, life and any fallenness. You long for that. You want that more than you want life itself. You're truly His. This, my friends, is the love that many waters cannot quench. Those of you who know the Lord Jesus can be assured the basis of God and His covenant and His oath that this experience will be yours. The New England preacher Jonathan Edwards wrote a huge book entitled The Religious Affections. And his thesis in that work is that true religion, for the most part, Edwards said, resides in the affections or the emotions. In other words, this is how you know that a person's relationship to God has passed from the mere intellectual assent to the facts. Right? I mean, there is a God, and Jesus Christ is his son, and he died on the cross, and he died for people's sins. I assent to that. I believe that in my mind. But you know that you have passed from mere intellectual assent to a real possession for yourself, he says, when all of these facts, they now reside in your affections. When your heart is drawn out to these things. And of course, the scripture speaks of these, in these kinds of terms. It uses emotional terms throughout its pages. In fact, it's almost you know, taken for granted because it's hardly argued to be this way. Perhaps the most 
well-known passages, Matthew 22, 37, when Jesus said to the Pharisees that the greatest commandment of all is this one, it's not to believe, but it's to love. That you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Mark's account adds, with all your strength. He doesn't say that the greatest commandment is to accept the facts about him, but the greatest commandment is to love him. Now that means, of course, that when you approach people with the gospel, well, we often use a question like this, you know, we'll say, if you died today, do you know where you would go? Or are you certain that you're saved? Or what do you believe about Jesus? And we often say things like this, and and these things are good and appropriate questions. But here is a biblical and a very probing question that essentially asks the same thing, but it moves it from the mind and the will to the heart. Do you love Jesus Christ? When did you start to love him? I just want to put that question to you as we close this morning. Do you, do I love Jesus Christ? Now he gave us a way of measuring that, right? He said, if you love me, you will what? You'll keep my commandments. But you're also aware of the fact that it's possible to be very disciplined and academic and almost legalistic in our approach to obey the Bible. That's not what he's talking about. The love that is really from God and should be to God has a warmth of feeling to it. That's why his commandments are not burdensome to a true believer. Because I really feel this way. I want to have this relationship. I want to please him like a woman is prepared to subject herself and put herself under a man because she really cares for him. She wants what he wants. She loves him like she loves no other. You love the Lord Jesus. You have a warm affection in your heart for him, a tenderness of feeling. Have you come to the place where the words that he used of Christ and his giving of himself have really become personalized to you? You know, in Ephesians, Paul says Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. But in, in Galatians, later on, he puts it this way, that Christ loved me, gave himself for me. Do you have that kind of personal security? Do you know, you understand that the love of God has been put upon you? Do you know that without a doubt, He drew you from deep waters with a strong arm. Personally chose you for himself. And he made you his own. And being with him for eternity is guaranteed by his oath and his covenant and his name and his integrity and his faithfulness and truth. Do you know that in your heart? Well, if you do, then your heart is drawn out Toward it. That's the case, then you can be like a bride preparing herself for a wedding. All of the anticipation and joy of choosing the dress and preparing the flowers and making the invitations and decorating the cake and 
you know, doing up your hair and your nails and your makeup. You can have that kind of joy and love and peace and freedom of spirit as you prepare yourself by your righteous acts, your marriage to the Lamb, your joyous entrance into the city that he has prepared for you. Are you ready for a wedding? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this image of the bride and the groom, the promise of a wonderful wedding one day and a marriage supper. We thank you for the calling you've placed upon the hearts of many here. Father, help them to know by their affection for you that they truly do belong to you. Help us to love one another, prepare ourselves as you've called us to do for that wedding in that city, those things that you've wonderfully prepared for our enjoyment. We anticipate that. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name. a great old gospel song that's a song of anticipation of just that thing when we all get to heaven. You stand with me and let's sing that together. Sing Sing
Having our AGM here in just a few minutes, so uh, all the members or those who might soon be members, you're welcome to stay and observe as well. Uh, but in just a few minutes, we'll we'll begin our meeting here. But you can greet one another for a little bit. Thank you. 